Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Marge Persky, she and it, we're back here. And let me ask some of you to uh, read a paragraph that you find to be particularly interesting. Who wants to go first? Or shall I start and then we'll, uh, everyone will come up with one. Come up with one as soon as I'll start with one then. I'm going to page 197. Oh, you have one? Um, okay. I do have one. Okay, which one? What page? It's page uh, 361. 361. Great. Everyone turn to page 361. Super. And what is the beginning of it? Uh, Russian. Russian at the top. Yeah. All right. Slow and clear. All right. Russian. We had some Russian-born scientists who had emigrated just before the two-week war. You hear the weirdest hybrid languages in the globe, not just Spanglish, but Chino-English, Hmong-Japanese, Turco-Spanish. I don't know what will happen to language in the end, but I'm sure it's cooking in there. That was All right. Cool. What did you get? What, what, what was your thought about that? My thought was uh, just about the um, hybridization of cultures and languages that is um, occurring with the uh, creation of the GLOP, because you have sort of the state governments breaking down, and it's everyone in the GLOP basically not dividing to gangs by ethnic lines, but by the necessity to survive. And I thought that that was sort of shown pretty well by Piercy through uh, her use of the uh, combination of languages. That's interesting. Um, you know, there is an attempt in some parts of the world to preserve certain cultures, to preserve certain Native American cultures, to preserve certain African cultures. And there's also a reaction against that. And the reaction against that is you can't put people in a, in a, in a vice of time. You can't freeze their evolution as a group. The reality is people mix. And if you want to, say, preserve the Maasai culture exactly as it is and have them run around with red okra capes all the time with a spear, uh, really what you're preserving is their imprisonment in a, a, a cultural window that goes back to a time that is long gone just for the sake of tourists who are going to come by and take photos. And in reality, the Maasai should be learning computer programming along with everybody else. So, the issue of hybridization is, is actually a key to much discussions in the evolution of societies because nothing stays the same with cultures. Cultures are always changing. Cultures are always evolving. And there's always a mixture. Our language doesn't look at all like what it used to look like. And then if you look at other languages, you'll see English words all over the place. If you listen to... A, if you don't understand Hindi and listen to a conversation between two people in Hindi, go to India, you'll be able to follow a great deal of what's being said because there's so many English words that are smattered throughout there, new words that are borrowed. So the idea of having sort of this mixture of culture is sort of mapped with a mixture of language as well. So that's actually a very interesting point, uh, especially in times of great change where there's a lot of movement, where cultures mix so much actually happens. Let me uh, let me pick a um, a thing too, all right? 
Let's go to page 197. At the bottom of page 197, where it says, you can start by asking me where I'm from. Okay? So, you can start by asking me where I'm from. Neely sipped her wine. So this is uh, Neely and Yod, or Yod, as some people say, talking and uh, wondering, you know, Yod's knowing that she has remarkable enhancements. So she says, why don't you find out where I'm from, <coughs> by, who I am by noting where I'm from. Okay, where are you from? Yod asks agreeably. He was watching them all, tightly coiled in his chair. Shira was sure he had noted where Neely had put away her pistol and what weapon Reba had carried as well as its current whereabouts. Having perfect recall, he could simply replay the scene until he was sure. Safed. Shira snorted in disbelief. Safed, in Israel, no one lives in, in that whole interdicted sector. It has lethal levels of radiation and plague. I can walk in the raw without protection. I can tolerate levels of bombardment that would kill you. We live in the hills, inside them, that is. We are a joint community of the descendants of Israeli and Palestinian women who survived. We each keep our religion, observe each other's holidays and fast days. We have no men. We clone and engineer genes. After birth, we undergo additional alteration. We have created ourselves to endure to survive, to hold our land. Soon we will begin rebuilding Yerushalayim, which is Jerusalem, of course. Shira felt her mouth sagging open. She could not have been more shocked if Neely had announced herself a representative of whatever distant race had sent the message. No one on earth could yet decode. Shira had grown up with a black patch on the maps for the destroyed area. The interdicted zone of the Middle East, where the last great two-week war had been fought, set off by a zealot with a nuclear device who had blown up Jerusalem. When it was all, when it was over, all the countries involved were wastelands, and the very ground was uninhabitable. Most of the oil fields of the region were aflame and useless. No more oil would ever be pumped from them. It was truly no man's land. What do you think about this? idea that Marge Percy is raising. Well, first of all, remember that science fiction only is relevant to us as something to read if it is relevant to us. Is there anything in this relevant to us? Go ahead. I mean, um, after the uh, the dropping of the bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the whole idea that Possibly one day a part of the earth could just be burned up, became a reality. So I think that in the novel she's playing on our fears of what if a nuclear device is unleashed again, could this be the result? All right. So she's playing typically on our fears about nuclear devices, but what else? Go ahead. There's no man. That's odd, isn't there? Makes you feel like the reason there was a conflict in the first place is because of the men. That's... <laughs> That's just, that's one of the yeah. Women can coexist peacefully. Interesting. That the reason there were conflicts in the first place were because of the men, and the conflicts led to nuclear annihilation. 
So they're able to maintain the peace by getting rid of the men. That's a very interesting gender statement. Is there, that this group found dysfunctionality in the male half of the species. What else is there that's relevant to our current life and this idea that she's raising? Not just of the men, but of the whole situation in this passage. Okay, well, what if it was a nuclear bomb on, the, I don't know, Chicago? I mean, obviously there's the issue of Jerusalem as, I mean, because, I mean, they are, I mean, if they're underground, right where Jerusalem was, and I suppose it's a warning against the conflict in Jerusalem. Actually, they're in the hills, so they're probably in the West Bank areas. But they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, and that's where the bomb went off. How does that relate to us? New Orleans, Katrina, be rebuilt if things are destroyed. New Orleans and Katrina be rebuilt. Sort of, but... Well, I know. Are we really talking about just a general concept of wanting to rebuild? Is that the the point she's trying to raise here? Well, there's a very obvious emphasis on, um, like, the religious conflict that's been going on there for the past 60 years, um, or 70 years now, I guess. Male-dominated religious conflict, you might say. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's a it's a nasty thing where, you know, it's just an issue of two bits trying to um, live in the same space that both consider sacred for different reasons. And um, so with this whole conflict going on, um, the emphasis that it's a joint community of descendants of Israeli and Palestinian women uh, to keep religion observe each other's holidays and fast days is very important as a point um, because it just emphasizes uh, like the cooperation for survival. It's a basis. All right. So. The emphasis for cooperation for survival. But let, let, that's that's a good point. That's an excellent point. That's there. Um, the need to to let differences not divide them, but to cooperate. But what about what about the idea of a nuclear bomb in Chicago? Why didn't she put a nuclear bomb in Chicago or Miami or something? Why? What's what the thing? What is the thing about Israel? Remember why she doesn't do anything in the novel that's by mistake or by accident. There's well, an element of theater shock in all novels. Why theater shock us in Israel? I was just going to lead a connection between Chava and then later Malka making their their journeys to Israel. So it's building up, you know, uh, connecting between the two stories of them wanting to to make their way there. So it introduces the idea that it's still plausible to make your way to Jerusalem. Okay, the old concept of Aliyah, to travel to Israel, all right, and to live there. Okay, it's there. But why the nuclear holocaust in Israel? Yeah. I mean, it is the promise, or it's like the holy city for, like, the three, so for a Judaism, a Christianity, and Islam. And because of that, I mean, if your holy city is blown up, I mean, that's a lot of shock factor right there. All right, but a nuclear annihilation. In the book, is there any other place on the planet Earth that she talks about as being wiped out via nuclear weapons? No. So why the theater shock connecting... Israel to nuclear weapons. As far as I can tell, there was an effort to sort of 
crush all religious belief and sort of turn it into a a multi-corporational sort of... Okay, in general throughout the novel, you're correct, there is an idea of crushing religious belief and turning it into a general multi-corporate environment. But then again, what is Marge Percy? Does Jerusalem, or does Israel have nuclear capacity right now? Of course. Well... It's unconfirmed, but people think they're... No, it's without question. They have they have long had nuclear capability. But what about this? They didn't build... They didn't blow up themselves. Uh, that's one thing you don't know, though, is... Uh, didn't it say that a religious what is fanatic... Talk- what yeah, is more yeah, yeah, it's a bomb? It's just a religious fanatic. It doesn't say what religion it is. It could have been... Okay. What you have to say, what you have to start thinking about, is what in our current society is being addressed by the author? Uh, now let's talk about some facts. Go ahead. Okay, uh, so Israel is um, surrounded by Muslim nations that... Surrounded by hostile forces. They all disagree with the creation of Israel in the first place. And they all disagree with the creation yeah. of Israel in the first place. Uh, the expansion of Israel, um, or its land holdings. So, um, because uh, the Palestinians were displaced with the creation of Israel, uh, they are an Arab people... And they are supported by, um, like, Saudi Arabia supports the Palestinians, and because they're a Muslim people, they're supported by much of the um, other Muslim countries in the area. And so, uh, currently, um, it's the president of Iran who wants to nuke them off the face of the planet. But in the past, it's been just about every leader of every country in that area who has been anti-Israel. All right. There's a lot of anti-Israeli sentiment surrounding Israel. But the nuclear stuff, let's look at some of the facts on the ground. A lot of the Middle East countries have been a focus of efforts for nuclear proliferation. Syria, absolutely Iran, and we have a current situation in which there have been sometimes veiled and sometimes not so veiled nuclear threats coming out of Iran, mentioned by Iran's president. This idea of having centrifuges. They now have over 5,000 centrifuges working to create nuclear weapons, nuclear weapon material. Now, they say it's all for peaceful purposes, but nobody believes that. So nuclear proliferation is an inevitability. Pakistan has it. North Korea has it. It's only a matter of time before Iran has it. And Iran's on record at least the president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, is on record as saying the Israeli problem will go away soon. Sort of in the same paragraph he's talking about the nuclear weapons, uh, the, the, you know, the, the nuclear stuff that he's, that, you know, that he's proud that Iran is working on. And what did Iran just do the other day? Relating to technology. Literally, just the other day. What did they shoot up? Oh, a satellite. They launched their first satellite. They launched a rocket into space. Now, you've got to be able to have a sophisticated level of technology to do that. And the rocket was based on North Korean designs. 
So here we have a Pakistan that's coming apart and it has nuclear weapons. The last time they had a nuclear sort of tit-for-tat show with India, India uh, detonated one of their nuclear weapons to show what was going on and Pakistan retaliated by detonating a whole bunch of them. Well, that lets you know that Pakistan has a whole bunch of them. You don't go detonating a whole bunch of them if you don't have a whole bunch of others in reserve. So Pakistan has nuclear weapons, not just one or two, a bunch. And Iran's going to have them if it doesn't have them yet. And Iran has made some not-so-veiled threats with respect to Israel. Israel is a one-bomb or two-bombs place. So if you're talking about eliminating the threat, you're talking about one bomb or two bombs and the place is finished. So what Marge Percy is doing is using theater shock to say in the post-apocalyptic world where environmental Armageddon has struck, you're going to get different things. But most likely within that environmental world, when things fall apart, as Chinua Chebe would have said, when things fall apart, one of the things that's likely to happen is that Israel is not going to be a victim of simply environmental degradation. A little rising of the sea levels, a little extra pollution in the skies. They're most likely, when things fall apart and society loses grip on itself, are likely going to fall victim to nuclear holocaust. That's what Marge Percy is commenting. Not predicting, saying that is what is going to happen. But when things fall apart, everything falls apart. And Marge Percy is raising the possibility that that's may what, that may be what happens there. And then she's raising the issues also of what could possibly, she's speculating, what could possibly emerge after that? A society that respects people's religious beliefs regardless. A society that gets rid of men who caused the problems in the first place. These are radical deviations. Not necessarily saying that that's what will happen. But in commenting in her post-apocalyptic Israeli society, what she's actually sort of pointing to is the real problems that people have in a way that shocks you when you read it. It's an interesting set of concepts. Hmm. So the men are the problems. When you read news stories, you don't really see a gender orientation. That's why this is feminist literature. It's really stating that there is a male problem. There's a man problem in the world. And if there is going to be a nuclear catastrophe in the Middle East, it'll be caused by men. And the solution is going to be dealing with the man problem to begin with. It'll be women that lead the change. This is an interesting commentary that Marge Percy is making. Whether it's right or wrong is you know, arguable, of course. But it's just a commentary and a cause for argumentation later. But this is the type of the things you should be responding to when you read this thing. Let's look at the novel with a wide-angle lens for a moment. Put yourself in the position of a professor or uh, someone who writes a literary review magazine, who's the editor of a review magazine, say. And I have lots of issues with reviewers, so I'm not saying those people are always wise, but let's just put yourself in a position of someone trying to give an overview of the of the novel. What are some of the things, what, what is one thing that you might be able to say about the novel that upset you, that was as most profound as you can imagine, 
that, that would be disturbing, perhaps even disturbing to Marge Percy. Or maybe per, per, something that you perceive that Marge Percy did that would be disturbing to other people, but you're supportive of Marge Percy. Well, what, what kind of things went on in the novel? Name something that sort of was profoundish. The idea of um, uh, everything being connected to your fingerprint, so all of your credit, so people would chop off people's hands and use them as credit. That really bothered me. Oh, that was interesting. The whole idea of the technology of using your finger for knowing your credit. They're doing that these days, not just for credit, but they're actually going to be, there's actually a movement to implant one of the things they can do is actually implant little things in people if they want. It's an optional thing to be able to recognize when you go through airports and things like that, a little chip. They're doing it in passports now, but it's also possible to implant them in people. Um, what else? But what, what, what about maybe any social commentaries? This is a social science course. Anything social commentaries that you see about this? novel that may be upsetting or of interest profound the thing that kind of got me if there's anything in this book that really got me it was just how how comfortable everyone was with the condition of their world it was like they had oh. torn it down and rather than really going out of their way to improve it they learned to just deal with it that's a great idea that when the world was destroyed, actually, that was a great idea. When the world was destroyed, people were, there was always that motion to maintain the status quo or to incrementally get advantage, of your, you know, your particular advantage or your company's advantage over others. Well, I think Mealy, Relate that to the world now. Go ahead. I was going to say represents the only group, I think, that's actually trying to change anything. Neely, well, she certainly does represent a group that has made a radical departure from the from the rest of humanity. But they do something similar. Instead of, you know, wearing, what was it, a second suit, a sex suit, they just make it so that their skin can withstand more radiation. They don't really go out of their way to, you know, change anything. They're just striving to survive. I think that was one of the big things that she said, that her people were survivors rather than they were creators. In order to change, you have to survive in order to implement your change. Yeah. I don't know. I think I see a lot of stuff that you could challenge with Zach's comments. So, anybody have an idea? What do you want to? What anybody want to challenge this? Um, I thought one of the things that was like a, a big deal for creation and humanity is uh, they talk about um, the merging of Islam and uh, like the Jewish faith um, among that community because it's like the survivors of. Jerusalem, basically. Uh, so it's emerging of faiths, like almost a creation of a new religion, and it's a society entirely made of females. Um, they have engineered their own food supply. They heavily modify their bodies with cybernetics that um, I, I think indicates that because they're cut off from society and they're still able to do that, that they have some creative minds working on that type of technology in their own society. Um, so I thought like it was interesting that they had evolved sort of um, similarly alongside mainstream society while they were so isolated where they were. 
um, they made some similar changes. Now, why were they isolated? Uh, because uh, they lived in an area that was considered uninhabitable by the They went to an uninhabitable area. That's very interesting. So, while Zach was actually saying they sort of did sort of a parallel existence, you're actually saying something different, that they were more radical and in fact had to put themselves in a different environment that basically hid them so that they could not be found and they could move in their own direction for fear that if they were actually discovered, they would be squashed and be brought in. So, I think, well, is it, does anybody else have a, you know, one way to think of that is they were more revolutionary. Well, I mean, if, what I, do you think? One of the things that Neely said was that they were waiting for the ro- world to be ready for them. Essentially, and I mean, we can think about what we were talking about on Tuesday, how, you know, Society just has revolutions, and in between the revolutions, it's building up to the revolution. So Neely's um, group of women are just sort of waiting for the rest of the world to get so discontented that they'll actually be ready to listen to something revolutionary. Interesting. Interesting. What would you say was the revolutionary thought, though? Peace. (laughs) In Neely's group? Yes. Go ahead, Nina. Uh, I think peace is a big, um, a very revolutionary thought for them. Peace and uh, respect. And that's something that is rather absent in most of the world in Hishi and it. The Gloth, there's no respect. It's There's certainly no peace. Well, I would say there's respect in the Gloth. They somewhat demand it, and if you don't give it, then they take your hand or they take your life. It's one of those, rather than earning it, they they force it upon you. It's... I don't know if they ask for respect so much as submission. Permission? Submission. Submission. It's Stefan, right? Now, Stefan, you came up with quite a list of different things that they were doing. Why don't you repeat some of that list? In terms of what is a revolutionary thought, um, you didn't have one thought. You had a whole bunch of them. Well, uh, probably the the one thing that stood out to me, um, like the free cities have religion. Like Tikva has a religious background in that they're mostly Jewish. And so this other group of people who also come from uh, like a mixed faith um, would be revolutionary to the society because they are essentially godless. Um, they're... Uh, you know, the Glop doesn't have religion, it has warlords and uh, dangerous gangs, and then the Maltese, they don't have religion, they just have profits and they, you know, your social status. They said that they had a sort of corporatist religion. Yeah. You know, the company is God, that sort of thought. But, but what were some of the revolutionary things that you listed earlier uh, about Neely's home? Um, well, I think one of the main things, when Neely and uh, Yud, if I'm saying that right, um, However you pronounce it, when, it's fine. when they first met, uh, and he comments that she is almost as uh, robotic as he is, almost as modified as he is, and so they um, approach modifying the human body with a very open mind because they've been forced to do it for survival in a lot of situations, but they are um, essentially becoming like superhuman 
And that's a, like a physical revolution as well as a social one. If you can manage to make people come around to the idea that it's okay for people to modify their bodies in this way, it's not strange. Um, and if you think about Yud uh, and Neely, one thing that I found particularly interesting was that she was, I think she had by far the most violent reaction to him as a, as a cyborg, as a robot. She was like, he's, you know, he's different, you know, taking out her gun and freaking out about him. But as soon as someone explains, you know, who he is and as soon as she gets to know him, she's like, oh, okay, that's fine. She's just, Neely is very open-minded and very, I guess, as long as she doesn't perceive something to be an immediate threat, she's willing to consider it. Now, this is interesting. Let's pursue this, this issue of... Neely and her group from the perspective of radical feminism. What kind of statement do you think Marge Percy is making about revolutionary thought with respect to feminism? Well, what were things about Neely's group that were... That was one of the big things that we discussed, I think, the last time we talked about this book, was the simple fact that there's no men in the society. They got rid of men. They, they just do genetic cloning. And it, we said that, you know, a certain message they send is, you know, men are the ones who screw it up. We talked about how Avram and, you know, other so-called uh, creators are the ones that, you know, really um, kind of mess things up between him and the Maharal um, creating, you know, creatures of flesh with wills. And it was only when Malka came in and kind of put her her own touch on Yud that he became human. So it, it kind of sh shoots the uh, the aspect that without men, you know, women would, would be able to put a certain uh, humanity back into the world. That's a radical, revolutionary idea. A entirely pro-feminist, excluding the masculine part, gender entirely, uh, as one element to fixing things. However, what Nino also said about the flexibility of thought, once Neely comes outside of that world, what is one of the first things she ends up doing? Getting in a relationship with? Gotti. Gotti. Independent thought. Independent thought, willing to think differently outside of the thing. By the way, you know, science fiction is relevant to us because... It connects with us in some way. Listen to this opinion column by Nicholas Kristof, February 8th, 2009, New York Times. Okay? It's called Mistresses of the Universe. Banks around the world desperately want bailouts of billions of dollars, but they also have another need they're unaware of. Women, women, women. At the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, some of the most interesting discussions revolved about whether we would be in the same mess today if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters. The consensus, and this is among the dead white men who parade annually at Davos, is that the opt optimal bank would have been Lehman Brothers and Sisters. Wall Street is one of the most male-dominated bastions in the business world. Senior staff meetings resemble a urologist's waiting room. Aside from issues of fairness, there's evidence that the result is second-rate decision-making. 
There seems to be a strong consensus that diverse groups perform better at problem solving than homogeneous groups. Lu Hong and Scott Page wrote in the Journal of Economic Theory summarizing the research in the field. A fascinating British study supports that conclusion with evidence from the drool of financiers. The researchers, using saliva of male traders, tracked natural variations of testosterone in the morning and the amount of profits they earned for the firm that day. We found that a trader's morning testosterone level predicts his day's profitability, reported the study, published last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Higher testosterone meant more risk-taking, and usually more money. On its own, that, meant, that might suggest that men have an advantage on the trading floor. Yet the same study also suggested that elevated testosterone levels could lead to greater assumption of risk. High testosterone levels may shift risk preferences and even affect a trader's ability to engage in rational choice. In other words, in other words, when male traders crash, boy, they crash. So could it be that the problem on Wall Street wasn't subprime mortgages, but elevated testosterone? It's important to be skeptical of some of the research. Often it seems to be conducted or studied by those who have strong views about gender. And it's generally true that the research conducted on matters pertaining to fairness or social justice rarely has the rigor of research conducted on, say, particle physics. Yet the number of studies reaching similar conclusions from different directions is striking. One of the shortcomings of any system of men sitting in front of screens making financial bets was reported just last year in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behavior. In case you missed your copy, that study found that men are particularly likely to make high-risk bets when under financial pressure and surrounded by other males of similar status. As for women, their risk-taking was unaffected by this kind of peer pressure. Marge Percy's, and that just came out. Marge Percy may be making a valid point. What do you think? I think a society with entirely women is too extreme. A society without women, without without men, without men is too extreme. You say. I would agree with her. Just <laughs> as a man. Of course, the argument here is in the art in Nicholas Kristof's article is that a, a more heterogeneous group of leadership with men and women equally represented wouldn't be so vulnerable to the to the to the faults of one particular side. However, uh, Marge Percy is a writing a feminist novel that has making a strong point. Remember what we were arguing earlier about saying something that's disturbing, that sheds some light, some profound light on reality? Well, one question you may say is, is Marge Percy actually recommending that we turn into a cloning society and get rid of all men? Or is she actually using Neely and her group as an example to bring out a new idea that she couldn't otherwise bring out? which is there's a problem with a male-dominated structure. We end up annihilating ourselves. So, you get the idea, it raises these issues. Literally reading Marge Percy's book focused me on that Nicholas Kristof opinion column. 
gets me thinking about things like that. So you see how that's a profound idea? Men being the fundamental problem. Now, if you looked at the bankers that were in front of Congress, they had a picture in the New York Times today about the bankers all lining up in front of Congress. These guys lost, you know, trillions of dollars. They squandered everything. And then right after that, 700 of them gave themselves million-dollar bonuses after they got the taxpayer money. It's in the New York Times today. 700 of them rewarded themselves with million-dollar bonuses. Bonuses! Right after they got the bailout money. Talk about chutzpah. Risk-taking. We call that risk-taking. They were even risking having... having, uh, Attorney, uh, you know, New York's Attorney General Cuomo will go after them in in in, in possible in possible cases of uh, fraud because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, the question is: is this a, is this fraud to get money under one circumstance and then then give it to yourself? Imagine you going to a bank and saying, "I want to have uh, this money to buy a house," and they, you know, you take it and then you just pocket it and go. The banks do everything they can to make sure you don't misuse that money. Do you see how many forms they have you sign? Well, you're too young. But when you buy your first house, you'll see how many forms they have you sign. And if you want to take a car loan and lump it into your mortgage, they will actually make sure that the $12,000, $15,000 that you're going to use to pay off your car actually goes to the car. They don't just give you the money and say, here, go pay your car with it. They actually have the check written out to the car company. They make sure the connection is made. Yet when they were given the bailout money and the connections were not forced on them, they took the money and ran. <coughs> that's that's chutzpah. You get the idea? So the point is that this type of risk-taking, this type of malfeasance, is uh, seems to be more prominent in male-dominated groups. Is the world coming to an end, we might be able to say. So this is a very strong pro-feminist point of view. Now let's take it from another point of view. How about somebody come up with something in the novel that's anti-feminist? Something that Marge Percy may not have even recognized that is a very potentially negative thing to say about women. Reva's a bitch. What's that? Pardon my French, but really, Reva's a bitch. (laughs) That was the point I was going to make, is Reva, who is... uh who is depicted as such a strong woman, submits very easily to the leader of, uh, what's that? Lazarus. To Lazarus. You know, she, of all of the women who are depicted, I would say, is between her and Neely, she's the most strong, the one who feels the, the least need to be tied down through relationships. And then Lazarus comes <laughs> along and she just submits. I think Malka's the strongest, but I think... Reva's portrayed as being the one that everyone perceives as the strongest. Uh, she's, you know, she's going out and doing things, well, sometimes for money, but sometimes, you know, for the good of the people. And, you know, she never connects herself to any men. She, you know, goes so far as to not even, you know, she goes to a sperm bank to have Shira. Um, she, you know, she's not... She's not connected to any men. She's not connected down, but she's this strong woman. But she is the nastiest person in this novel by far. Now, that's interesting. Let me ask you a question. She's sort of a deadbeat mom, Reva. She has a child and gives it to her grandma. 
gives it to her mother, the child's grandmother, uh, to be raised. And uh, she goes off and lives in a life of adventure, doing daring things. Ask yourself this question. And everyone thanks her for it, too. And what's that? Everyone thanks her for it. Yeah. Ask yourself this question. Do you think you would be reacting so strongly if Reva's character was a man? Now, just think. How many characters like that are portrayed admirably as men in things you see in novels and TVs? The guys that go out and do all types of things just seeming for themselves. Uh, you know, they do good, but they're all th- out there by themselves doing things, shooting up the bad guys, not being particularly good parents, but... I think, I think, I mean, for me, my biggest problem with Riva was the fact that she pretended to have been killed and didn't bother telling anyone because, oh, it would be much more believable. Deception. So you don't like deception in the context of Riva. I don't... Faking her death. It's... There's a lack of respect for uh, the people that love her and care about her. That's just... It's so incredibly disrespectful to let your mother and your daughter think that you're dead and not care. They're like, oh yeah, I'm alive. Now, you do understand from a technical point of view in, 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 in the defense of, of Riva that in a society that eavesdrops as much as that society does had there been any information out there that she was alive that she would have been pursued and she was looking to be you know not pursued but let me ask you another question she wasn't even apologetic though well, well you, have, you have to think about it like Neely when it comes to light that she's still alive Everyone gets mad at Neely because she knew about it the whole time. Neely doesn't get mad about it. She just says it was necessary to do this. I can understand how it would be necessary, but Riva doesn't have any remorse. She's like now the oh, question yeah. that that's a, that's that's brilliant, very interesting. The question I'd like you to ask yourself and all of you is: Would you feel the same if Riva was a man? Let me give Wouldn't you an example. Just as pissed off, yes. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't let think us. So. I don't, don't think, think you would. Mad. You wouldn't be as mad. I let's let's be. take an example. Clint Eastwood in the good, the bad, and the ugly, and actually a whole bunch of his films. I mean, he's an admirable character. People love to see him out there shooting up the bad guys, but also lying through his teeth, faking things. Would you like a woman to do the same stuff? Uh, I have a good example, Go ahead. actually. Let's go around with that. James Bond. In every movie, he sleeps with, like, five women. If that was a woman doing that, it'd have a completely different connotation. That's an interesting point. James well, Bond. Let's not get into that. <laughs> James Bond. And all that brings up another um, issue entirely, but at the same time, it's still a gender issue. If James Bond was a woman, those movies would not be serious. All right, now, look, let's... Let me check the time here. Okay, so we have a few very assertive women. 
Malka, from the perspective of programming, doing things that... But she's also responsible. You know, she's also daring, going into the net, you know, daring do, that type of stuff. You have Neely, artificially enhanced, uh, coming from a world, a society that throws men out completely, doesn't have men, hides themselves. All right. And then we have Riva, acting very James Bondish and causing some reactions along this line. Do we have any examples of the reverse, of wimpy women that are simply not very strong at all? You're responding to the strong women. Do you have any... I'm sort of struck by the fact that there's some wimpy stuff going on in there that no one's responding to. And I'm sort of saying, is that because it's acceptable to you? The only woman I can think of in the novel who is really weak was Hannah, I think was her name. Really? Because I, I thought... the end, she wasn't. I thought so at the beginning, but that was more because, you know, I had sort of connected with Shira, and so I was just as affronted by what Hannah did. Also, um, Hannah was not as fully developed as Shira. Hannah was not nearly as fully developed as Shira, but by the end, Hannah really had humanity. I mean, she was just she was a much nicer person than you thought she was at the beginning. Interesting. So you're responding partly to Riva because you didn't like her as a person, and you're liking Hannah because you like her as a person, and you identified with with Shira. Well, I only did in the beginning. I didn't like Shira by the end. Yeah, okay, why did you I not like Shira by the end? Shira was kind of wimpy. Shira was kind of wimpy too. Yeah. Okay, well, why was Shira wimpy? She let everyone else go out and do things for her. Well, I was going to say. Well, that's an interesting point, Nina. Shira let everybody else go out and do things for her. Just the opposite of Nina, Neely, and Riva. Go ahead. What did? What about Shira doing? I that? mean, but not just Neely and Riva. She let Malka go out. She was like, oh, you know, she let everyone do things for her, and she didn't ever take. She never. I mean, she never. She never would admit to having any fault in anything, you know. She she did things and then acted the part of the poor damsel in distress. Oh, I've been so hurt. Oh, why, yes, it's so horrible. Oh, God, he's hurt me so badly. Well, interesting. In, in rescuing her son from YS, it's interesting that she couldn't have done it without Yad or Yad. He, she required him, and, and basically he was the one who made it happen. Um, but could you imagine Riva or Neely being as dependent? Not really. Well, you know, we're, we're running out of time. There's something I'd like you to think about. Um, we, still, we still have some seven minutes or so, but I want to make sure we, we get to it in those seven minutes. What about the end of the novel? How does the novel end with Shira? She what? destroys the only method she could have used to recreate Yod. What did what did Yod say? What did he want to have done? What actually happened? What was the thing? He blew himself up. Well, he didn't blow himself up, but when he was blown Ever. up... He kills Avram in the process. He killed his creator in the process. That was an assertive act by him. And why did he say that had to be done? So that he would be the last and there can never be something built like him ever again. So that was his statement and his action, so that he would be the last. So no one could create a cybernetic being 
to be enslaved like that again, a non-free cybernetic being. Uh, uh, clearly, an, an assertive act to the point of blowing up your creator. Okay? What was Shira's response? She said it was unfair. She was possessive of him. She liked him. Yeah, she liked Who's him. Who's going to take care of Ari? Pardon me? Who's going to take care of Ari? She should. Well, yeah, she should. <laughs> <laughs> but she wanted, she had a clear desire. She wanted, she wanted um, her lover back, who was blown up. What did she do? She found the crystals. She found the essentially like the flash drive that. But she threw it away. And which she threw was, it away. Which was somewhat redeeming, I have to say. Which was somewhat what? Redeeming. Somewhat but redeeming. But very cliche. Very cliche. Uh, yeah, very cliche, but you can't, you know, just... Why was it redeeming? Because she finally didn't take the selfish route. She didn't do what? She didn't take the selfish route on that. The selfish route? In fact, could you possibly say that she went along with the male part yet again? She said... Yeah, I didn't want me to recreate anything, so I guess we'll just do it his way. Mm. Throw this unique thing. But God was almost as equally male as he was female. Yeah, I think it was more of an issue of actually having respect for someone else's opinion and life. Well, technically, um, Speak loudly so it picks up. Technically, God was just a replacement for her son while he was gone, so she had... She really had what she wanted, so she could live without him. Yeah, but she wanted everything. But she started off with it being about me getting my son back. Yeah. Not about, oh, like, Yud. She always, she said, she was like, Yud was temporary. Even when she was in conversations with other people, she always pointed to him as being temporary, so... I think she I think she changed her mind by the end though. And I mean she, which the thing is that at, by the end she really did want him to be part of the family, I think. I mean, there was definitely talk of, you know, how he's sort of become Ari's father. I yeah, mean, she, she introduced she him, introduced as, your him stepfather. as the stepfather, which it it gave him a lot more I guess, human place in the world. Right. And then when he finally did something human, something where, you know, he made the decision about his life and he, you know, didn't want to be recreated because he couldn't, I mean, you really couldn't recreate him. Even if she'd tried to, it wouldn't have been good. And so... Let's I, look at this. Avram creates a unique thing, a living cybernetic being refuses to recognize it as a living thing rather than a toaster. <laughs> Shira, on the other hand, recognizes that the creature is living, alive, would like to live her life with this, with this, with Yud. Okay? Is given the ability to recreate a cybernetic species at the very end. To do something, what was the thing that was in Avram's mind? He wanted to be able to create. It was driving him to the point where he was spending all of this money, going in bankrupt, so that he could create that cybernetic creature. 
Shira, with tremendous needs, emotional needs, also would have liked to have created. But at the very end, she followed the rules or the desire of Yad, her male, her male companion. Can you imagine Avram doing that? Or Riva doing that? Or Neely doing that? I can imagine Neely doing that. I couldn't imagine Avram or Riva doing that. But I think it's not an issue of whether or not he was male. Now let's go back to Neely. What <laughs> happens when Neely finds out that Gadi had taken nude pictures of her and sent them off to the... They nude pictures of her? Well, yeah, they were, they were having sex, wasn't it? No, he took pictures of her when she was oh, doing the workout, workout in the morning. Workout. I don't think it was Okay, pictures. workout. Workout pictures. Anyway, revealing pictures and sent them off uh, to, to make a hopefully a new movie out of these things. Okay. What was her response? Anger. Anger. She didn't kill him, but she came close to being able... She removed herself, remember, so that she wouldn't kill him. And then she clearly restructured her environment so that that type of thing wouldn't happen again. And and then because the leak had occurred, she had to make her she had to, you know, get ready her escape. What about Shira? What would Shira have done in such a situation? Shira would have been flattered. What's that? Shira would have been flattered. Uh, yeah, Shira very well might have sort of said, well, if that's what my man wants to do, that's what my man wants to do. I don't think it, I don't know if I don't I don't know if she would have said, that's what my man wants to do, that's what my man wants to do. I think she would have been, because she she's so much more, I guess, materialistic. And a, materialistic or acquiescent? Materialistic. All right. Because <laughs> pleasure, pleasure-seeking. Because she's so much more concerned with, you know, being happy. And Neely actually has an agenda. Neely has something that she wants to do for the world and for her people. Shira is very focused on herself. What if there had been a novel, a Marge Percy novel, in which there wasn't a Shira who went right up to the point of being able to recreate a whole new species by herself and said, ah, my man didn't want it to happen, so I won't do it. What if that was the only thing in the novel? Or what if there were only Neelys and only Rivas? You see some of the tension that Marge Percy has put into this thing. Shira is impotent, well, not in a sexual sense, but in a creation of life sense. She's dependent on the man. She doesn't do things herself. She doesn't go out. What she does is she solicits other people to do things for her, to help her. She solicits Yud to help her get her son. She looks for help, and she got married because she thought... I don't think it's a question of being a woman. I mean, Gotti does the same thing. Gotti doesn't do anything for himself. He has the, the village boys come and build him things. And he has Neely, you know, be the be the man of the relationship. And he, you know, he... All he, you know, all he wants is everyone to do things for him. And, he, you know, he goes back and lives with his father. He we're, we're running out of time. You're raising, you're raising excellent points. What, and you're raising excellent points of the diversity of the male personalities. What I'm pointing out here is you should start to be thinking about how Marge Percy has represented women in a diversity. You have over-the-top Indiana Jones-type women, James Bond-type women. But on the other hand, you have real wimps. 
I think the See, point is... Mm. I would almost tell you you're wrong. Great. Because Great. <laughs> in, a, in a, a very simple kind of way, Shira is strong without getting her hands dirty. She's the woman, and I'm not going to say this in a, a negative way, but she almost manipulates everyone around her. Manipulator in chief. If, if you will, because she gets Yud, and there's a couple times throughout the story where she actually says, you know, would anyone else actually go out of their way to do this for me? Well, you know, it's the old story. I'm running out. We ran out of time, so uh, we have to ask you the way she manipulates people to do things for her. You know, she does some things herself, but it's always things that other people invite her to do, or that she gets other people to do with her. It's always a question of: Is she more the spider that says, "Welcome to my lair," the spider says to the fly, or is she the one that actually goes out like and is assertive? She, there's such a dramatic difference between her and Riva and Neely and Malka. What you should be looking at is what kind of tension is Marge Percy at? putting in her novel? What's that? What we should be looking at? Yes. Is what kind of tension is Marge Percy putting in her novel to cause strain in the reader and the type of argumentation that we have here? You see, if you have only one side in any novel... You don't get the tension. You don't get that dramatic. You don't get the personality development. You have to have conflict. I think the point is not whether or not they're women or men. I don't think the point is saying that women, you know, women are either the Indiana Jones type or they're the wimpy Shira type. I think what she's saying is more that are, it is possible for women and men to be the same types, that they can fill the same roles. 